Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Jim Rugg. I'm Ed Piscor. And this is James O'Barr's The Crow. This started publication in the late 80s at Caliber. Uh, of course, most people know it because it became a big, pretty successful film franchise. I mean, not, not pretty successful. I guess successful whenever it spawns a couple of sequels. Uh, first one starring Brandon Lee, who died on the set while in, you know while the film was in production. Um, so an infamous movie in that regard, but one of the early uh, comic movie successes, and probably just in terms of quality, one of the one of the best comic movies. You know, in an era where, where Batman has nipples on his outfit and <laughs> and is in Dayglow scenarios, uh, this is pretty faithful to the like. If you were into the Crow comic, uh, I bet you don't have many complaints when you watch the flick. That's a good. I think that's a good description, Ed, for for how that movie was received. This is how I first came across The Crow. This is a comic scene magazine from 1992. I bought it for the Rob Liefeld uh, Young Blood coverage, which you know this would have been my favorite thing at the time. But there wasn't a lot of uh, comics in my life. I didn't have a comic book store at the time, so I was buying whatever I could find. And whenever I would get a comics magazine, I'd read it cover to cover. Yeah. And there's a feature on the crow. And this is uh, 1992. So this is, I think there might be rumors of a movie, even though it took several years. Did the movie come out in 94, 95, something like that? This was just, for me, the comics. And so like when I finally started going to comic book stores, it was to find the Image Comics, which is this time period. And I know I picked up the crow. Tundra was doing reprints of the first four comics that Caliber had done, and then the conclusion was uh, a book three because they would gang up those first two issues were in one book from Tundra, issues three and four in a second book, and then issue, what would have been the fifth issue, was the third book in Tundra, and it was the first time it was published, and that was the first Crow I ever bought. And it's based on this article. Like, I'm looking at this article, and again, I keep flashing back to Rob Liefeld. This is what I was devouring, and then this is what I was exposed to. And I'm trying to make comics, and I'm drawing in black and white because color was just another language and, and tools I had no idea. So my sketchbooks looked like this, at least in terms of I'm drawing with markers and pens and ink and stuff. And so this is part, one of those early indie black and white books that showed me indie comics and self-publishing and guys that were doing everything themselves. The Crow was one of those probably first couple of indie black and white books that I found. Uh, on top of everything you just said, uh, this is also... One of the early crossover hits uh, for comics, meaning that uh, girls enjoyed this. Uh, that, it, in fact, this article is written by an Anya Martin, I believe. Yes. Um, this was not standard operating procedure back in these days, man. Um, it was very much a boys' club. Now James O'Barr is a boy, but uh, whatever he brings to the table was attractive enough that uh, the Crow fans that in my life that I know are all uh, females and go to go to his booth at any festival man you'll see goth chicks hanging around his booth yeah and it spoke to me as like a you know angsty teenager at the time and you see it in this in in the little subtitle here for james obar the crow's violence isn't on paper it's in his readers minds this is what i was looking for i was you know like every teenager angry and unhappy and this was the kind of stuff i wanted to read and identify with Jim Rugg, are you not going to mention that you dressed up as the crow for a Halloween one time? You know, I, I don't mention it only because I can't find the proof of it. I can't find any <laughs> photos of it, so I feel like uh, everybody at home is sick of hearing that. Uh, but it is true. I did go as the crow uh, whenever I was in high school. 
uh, trick-or-treating with a girlfriend and uh, I don't know pretty pretty dumb scary costume I'm sure <laughs> to see like 16 year old me walking around that way it's incredible um, the influence that this had though on on wider culture I think there's two pieces one is outlaw comics yes. and we're gonna show lots of examples as we actually go through the comic here today the other one that's weird and I just want to get it out of the way at the top of the show here is the wrestler sting the oh, yeah, wrestler sure, yeah. sting has you know a decade-long career very successful on top in WCW is this colorful surfer character with colorful face paint and blonde flat top hair and then at some point in the in the late 90s mid to late 90s he changes his look and adopts the crow's look his face paint the dark longer hair the trench coat I've never understood what that's about I assume it's based on the movie in some way I can't imagine sting is tracking down the original comics right but I have no idea like what that even is and wrestles the rest of his career which turns out to be the majority of his career as essentially the crow my, my brother is a pro wrestling referee and and he just did a, a program with sting still dressed that way and, and doing all of that stuff now yeah there's that whatever what i will say about crow the the book i got that trade at walden books uh years before the movie came out and there were no real other superhero comics on those racks it was like ganged up next to like elf quests and uh weird stuff you know stuck rubber baby probably but it penetrated the bookstore market at a time when like Watchmen wasn't even in Walden books when I was scooping it up and Dark Knight wasn't there the crow was in Walden books at Century 3 mall I actually visited the book and read it in the mall and in the mall before I even picked it up so it was there nobody was buying it and eventually I was just like, this is coming home with me because I just kept thinking about it, man. I'm glad you said that, Ed. One, I'd like to time travel and do like a like a video tour of those bookshelves and what was on those because I remember those very distinctly as well. But the other piece that is, is noteworthy there is that The Crow is published, let's see, this edition by Kitchen Sink Press. Yeah, and so is mine. This is... Uh, this was originally slated to come out from Tundra. And, right. And Tundra switches hands and goes under the uh, kitchen sink. They kind of join up, but it goes under the kitchen sink banner. This is timed at the same time as Understanding Comics, which also had good bookstore distribution. And they both came out, I think, in the same year. You know, like these were slated for a Tundra spring or summer launch or whatever that year. It's covered in a, in a Wizard episode that we do, and it's right before Kitchen Sink acquires Tundra. But... Crow and Understanding Comics is like your big book slate for a year. Man, that's two major heavy hitters. Like these are books that had bookstore distribution before anybody really had bookstore distribution and continues to be part of the pop culture lexicon, uh, you know, in comics, in, in comics in America, in comics internationally, and, you know, continues to be around. So like a hell of a year, I guess 93, I think, is probably when those two books came out kitchen sink goes away 97 or so 98 uh be careful what you wish for type shit because when you have bookstore distribution the model is far different than the than the uh direct market where a shipped book is a sold book uh so there very well could have been a situation where they had to print up and and ship hundred thousand books uh I, last time i checked uh 
the crow was north of 700,000. So it's not a million seller or anything, but it's 700,000. Can't sneeze at that. Um, but maybe you have to print 21, uh, you know, 2.1 million, or maybe you have to print a million to, uh, to sell 700,000. So you've got a pulp 300 K that's, a uh, that's dicey for, for indie publisher, man. Yeah, I'm sure it's a risk. I don't think that's why Kitchen Sink went out of business because of the crow. But uh, no, I, there was a, there was also figures in one of I think I think it might have been the Kevin Eastman Comics Journal interview, which again is on our channel. Go check that out. But he talks about some of the Kitchen Sink press dealings, and there's like accounting. I think is like three or four million dollars. I believe they made from the crow in selling things like pins and t-shirts and you know all the stuff that goes with it but a lot of that is around the movie so we are going to concentrate on the book here i'm excited to get into this and a lot of the stuff that i have to say about it we'll kind of point out as we flip through and, and see some examples yeah yeah well one of the first striking things man is that james obar uses methods and materials he's not just a pen and ink artist as on display on the cover here yeah that was something that uh spoke to me very early on and we'll see it right here on this very first page not even a title page, but you get to see some of those different methods and materials that you're talking about, Ed. Yeah, hold hold tight real quick, too. Like, no, 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 like on that open page, because I have, uh, I brought just a few visual aids. Uh, I think that James Abar the Crow is like one of the direct children of the Frank Miller, Alan Moore influence on comics. And rereading the Crow, I'm stricken by like the way he draws his big eyes and everything. And then, like, I'm rereading, uh, I'm rereading uh, the the Miller DDs, and the way he draws. Now, this is this is more conservative, and we'll see as we go on. But he draws these like super gigantic eyes, and I swear, I really feel like it comes from Miller's influence on uh, his early Daredevil run. So I just wanted to show like that example right there. That's pretty good. My uh, my second note for this is great eyes. And so we'll point out some eyes as we go through, but it's nice to see the, the Miller reference there. And Obar's a comics fan, you know, um, reading interviews and stuff, preparation for this. He had started working on this in the early 80s. Uh, clearly a comics fan. So it's not like this is, you know, sometimes people will show up and make some masterpiece type work but their influences aren't necessarily comics. Obar is coming from comics. So yeah. I'm sure that the Miller stuff, the Alan Moore, the stuff that was popular and available, I'm sure he was he was conscious of. There's a character in here named Tintin. Uh, <laughs> the other big influence that I see in this is uh, Christianity. You know, a lot of comics will reference various mythologies. There is a ton of Christian iconography uh, littered throughout this book as opposed to, you know, Greek mythology or something else uh, that some comics have. You know, I think Kirby is more influenced by some of the Greek mythology. Um, this one is clearly referencing a lot of Christianity. Yeah, that's a that's a staple hallmark of uh, the Outlaw comic. It seems a lot of a lot of a lot of the Outlaw cartoonists grew up as uh, little Christian boys. Man, had that force fed down their throat, and this is what happens. And uh, intro in this edition is John Bergen, uh, a fellow Tundra artist. Oh, dig. Yeah, I believe he did a book there, and uh, just a, a known artist from Kansas City area. So I don't know if James O'Barr comes out of the Kansas City area or not. You know, this book is set in Detroit, yes. and it is Detroit as a character. I, <laughs> you always hear that in, like, shitty movie reviews, but it's true. And I think it's a piece of what I respond to in this book. And it's before Detroit really is, I think, the way, you know, we think of Detroit as, like, a post-industrial city. 
this was an early depiction of that. At least for me, this was an early depiction of that, and it's it makes for beautiful backgrounds. And a staple of Outlaw Comics in a lot of ways is that urban decay setting. Yes, yes. Uh, here's, here's another piece that um, was very important to me about this book, is th through the 200 pages, we'll say, that the book... Uh, the book contains tremendous artistic growth and it was crucial for me to see this at the time that I saw it to know that if I just keep working my work is going to get more it's going to get tighter it's going to get stronger and uh, I think he starts off very strong do not get me wrong I love the way this this first piece looks but we're going to be able to chart his artistic growth throughout this entire book and he's just he's just inspired at the time and he's getting freaking better and better he does some cool stuff with chapters and like scene titles so the first two comic books were pain and fear and that's what you know like the way this is collected it's collected based on the tundra series which was three bookshelf issues which is again issues one and two in the first book so that's pain and fear but a lot of these have like titles for sections and it's we talk about him using different materials mm -hmm. um you know pen and ink here on display we'll see things like zipatone and duo shade splatter effect we'll also see flashbacks that are done with ink washes and paints and pencil so it's a real mixed media approach he does the same thing with the title treatments so as we go along you'll see these different chapters that will have different treatments and titles and lettering some typeset some hand-drawn um, but before we get to that this is our first opening scene he gets one of these guys and i guess we should say the story is the Crow was, was uh, a guy named Eric, and it's based on he and his fiance are driving along. Their car breaks down at like an anniversary picnic or something, and this gang of drug addict criminals uh, stop and kill them and rape her. It's super horrific and violent and terrible, although most of it happens off off panel. You know, it's it's not really glorifying that stuff visually, but it's very clear the pain and torment is just every page of this book is infused with it and a lot of those mixed media pieces are flashbacks showing us eric and his fiance's uh love and life and relationship you know cutting between that and the present day violence so the book is set one year after those tragic events and the crow re-emerges and he is out for vengeance and that is what these 200 pages are about yeah there's no there's no uh obstacles in the crow's way there's there's no there's no drama on those ends he identifies a target and over these 200 pages we're watching him eliminate these targets one after the other and it's very much inspired by true life events in James O'Barr's life where his you know it took him a long time to, to like meet the one you know he got this girlfriend loved her adored her and she gets cut down by a fucking drunk driver in real life and this is him just kind of like uh you know it's that power fantasy man like i yeah i would love to cut the balls off of the guy who fucking did that to my girl kind of thing we're seeing that all on display and that's a part of the comic is like this sort of morose oh that's goth. the comic that's the whole of yeah. the comic not a part of that yeah. is the whole of this comic <laughs> is that mood and, and and is that torture and he, pain and he ain't playing man there's there's a, about an hour-long interview cut up in like five or six parts floating around on youtube you could just google his name that motherfucker ain't playing man he's living that shit when, living a gimmick when you started describing it ed i thought you were going to go in a different direction and that would be like applying slasher movie tropes because we will see a lot of inventive a, a lot of inventive weaponry that is being used 
Yeah, just just even this part right here, man, like where uh you know the bad guys going over here and then you see like the little uh tricycle yes. pops out of nowhere. That's a great horror movie trope. That might have happened in a Nightmare on Elm Street flick. Yeah, for sure. And uh we mentioned all the great eyes that we're gonna see. Here's the first one I'm gonna point out. It's absolutely beautiful drawing, I I think. And uh and we'll see these the eyes are just a constant motif. It's like a that one right there, that's very much like a Wrights and Frankenstein kind of inspiration or like a toddle bid. Yeah, yeah, either of those guys I would accept, uh, especially due to that line work, the fine line work that you see rendering there. But we are going to see a lot of creative uh, different ways that he dispels these dudes and, uh, yeah, just ratchets up the violence yeah, from, uh, from from the get-go. Yeah, what we just looked at was uh, one of the stories in uh, Caliber Presents, number one or two. And we get this flashback where he's looking out the window and he sees this horse running beside his train and then getting tangled up in barbed wire. And the crow is telling him not to look, which is something that we see throughout this story. Because when the uh, when the horrific events happen with him and his girlfriend, this crow like spirit is telling him, you know, don't look, don't don't watch what's happening. But of course, he does. <laughs> All right. So uh, this is, I guess, the actual start. What you would have gotten if you picked up. Crow number one from Caliber. This is, I guess, the beginning of that. And you can see art style. This is a little bit looser, a little bit more raw than the uh, than that intro section that we just looked at. Yeah. These are a couple of the bad guys. And the first thing that I noted is these bad guys are standing on the corner. I don't know if they're selling drugs or what they're doing. And a guy comes up, what, the third guy comes up, and he has a gun for sale. You know, and it's like, the gun's untraceable. I want 100 bucks for it. So the guy he's trying to sell it to takes the gun and just randomly shoots a woman who's across the street coming out of the grocery store. Uh, so we are not going to sympathize with these bad guys. This book is very much black and white. <laughs> and uh, And then he shoots the guy that was trying to sell him the gun, and ultimately that's when the crow confronts the guy. So the crow is not... He's not fighting crime. He's no. not there to save save anyone or to prevent some horrible thing from happening. He is there to exact vengeance. You see this, and it's like got that uh, Galassi vibe uh, a little bit. Uh, one of the things I really like is the like odd perspective on this splash page right here. It's very like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, like the perspective. It's going all over the place, man, and it creates this uneasy mood of. Um, Almost like like it is a dream or something. And here's uh, part two, and you're starting to see this different titles spread throughout these. And pay attention to those. You know, if you're a fan of lettering, um, one of my other notes is how good the lettering is, and it has a real lively like he's going between a bold style and a and I don't just a regular weight style on his lettering, but you even see it's there's a bounciness to it. I really like the lettering. And again, early for me was seeing a book that one person was producing yes. and producing all of. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, this isn't quite the polished lettering I would see in a Marvel comic, but it looks great. It reads well and it fits the art perfect. The, the reading well is is a big deal for me because this this is a breezy read. And uh, at the time when there was like voluminous text in, in comics, uh, this let me know this might have been the one of the first comics I saw done by a single person and it sort of let me know that like that there is a competition between the the, coll the collaborative teams or something because everything that's in here is is there for a reason like there's no extra weight or anything that said 
there is when we get to some captioning and stuff very hyperbolic very over the top uh he's punching above his weight class when he's trying to uh you know s- sell us on these these captions these these poetic captions yes poetic is the right word lyrical i think it's part of the appeal whenever you I talk about the uh the non-comics readers that like this book i think part of it is that that where he's going for it in some of those captions that i think of as a little far out maybe not for me i'm good with this <laughs> but i think some of those like po- more poetic like it, it, they are interesting, and, I, and we will look at a few of those. I just wanted to point out the visual variety on display even from the beginning because he gets very good at this. Yes. You know, as, as he continues to level up as an artist, this just gets better and better. But even early on, you can see, like, panel border, no panel border, panel border, no panel border. Like, he's thinking about page design and, and trying to make these pages look good, and it pays off. It, it comes through again and again consistently. You know, there aren't pages that look like, oh, he lost interest, and now he's just phoning it in. That never happens here, and it doesn't happen even in the beginning whenever he's maybe not as accomplished visually. Yeah, I mean, this guy, he he makes comics when he wants to make comics. Like, Beyond the Crow, I think he's done maybe less than 50 pages of comics in in his life that, that we've seen. Uh, and it seems like he works when he's inspired. It's not, he's not going to be a hamster wheel jobber kind of character. Yeah, unfortunately, because there's lots of projects that you'll hear mentioned in different places that never come to pass that I want to read. Uh, but but yeah, it's kind of sparse after this. And by the way, this first this guy that he kills is named Tintin. So and he looks like Saber. You know, obvious uh, comics references. And some of the uh, early flashback scenes here, we'll see like the zip tone or the screen tone being used. So good. And scratching it away, that's manga it, flavor. Man. His reign lots of scenes with rain really good at that so take note at home as you watch and you start to see some different depictions of rain i have some ideas about this stuff and i'll I'll give some examples but there's going to be more of that as we go so yeah and it's that's a dance you know some dancing sequences uh in interviews he talks about like iggy pop being a big influence and we'll and we'll see stuff that's directly taken from stills of iggy pop another one of these uh creative title lettering Again, this is just throughout, but I, I'll certainly point them out whenever I see them. So this is the next main guy that he's confronting, and this is like uh, gangsters here up to no good. And it's such a cliche of a scene, right? Like there's drugs, a scale, money, knives, guns, booze. Like it's everything you could think of. The only thing that I, I thought they could be doing is like maybe this guy in the background could be looking at a girly mag or something. Like get, some, get, get some pornography in there and you'll have like every vice represented or, or shooting dice in the background or something. Uh, but it's these guys are, are up to no good, clearly. And this is a visual interest where like very black, a lot of ink. And then you get down here and it's this white scene where he kind of pops out the, the main bad guy that the crow is going for in this scene. Pretty classic, uh, iconic image. I think this image was used in a lot of uh, press, a lot of interviews and things that I would see. This would be an image that was pulled out. Yeah. Such an interesting pose because it's not very like super heroic. It's it's even dainty. It's a, it's a little bit like, you know, Tim Curry, Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of. Posing. Yeah, the the dancer element to this character is an odd one because we're going to there are examples of his physicality, like his stature, he's this big dude, he's like 6-7 or something. So he's this big imposing physical presence, but it's often offset with this kind of a I, I don't know about the best way to describe it, but like a dancer is the best thing I can think of, you know, where it's like you're not thinking of it as like the punisher, this big hulking guy in the room, but rather this more balletic figure. Yeah, yeah, like there there were like, you know, famous 
performance art like mimes and stuff back in the day and it's almost there's some of that in there or something so this goes through kills everybody except for the the last bad guy who he the guy he was really after sometimes he goes into these these kind of rooms and he's like you guys can get out like this is the dude that i'm gonna kill and inevitably nobody ever leaves i, I think one guy more or less takes him up on it or or he lets leave yeah and it's that first guy Ed, you, you made a comment about this when we were flipping through to start with. Yeah, there's a little subliminal fellatio kind of uh, emasculation going on here. As soon as you say it, it, it really, it even bleeds over into like the spread. Um, you know, it's very clear that, that that's something that's, that's happening here. Yeah, yeah. Look at the flotsam and jetsam coming out of homeboy's mouth. And then again, flashback. This is probably a drawing that I copied in sketchbooks. You know, very simple... Uh, this was one of those things that would be impossible for me to draw early on was that idea of simplicity. Like I needed cross hatching everywhere and stupid amounts of detail that I could hide my deficiencies as an artist. So whenever I would find something that's like, that's one line for that whole uh, profile. Still a challenge for me, man, to draw like the attractive female profile uh, in even a simple line. like. And, and great contrast again from the darkness of the room that he's in. And then we get the almost pure white. Yeah, fascinating flashback. guy. He knows what he's doing. He he never put together that many pages, but but he he has some intuition at the very least. It's a good it's a good vision, and like all the variety of layouts too. We see so many comics from young cartoonists that send them to our show. You see commonalities amongst that, you know, young cartoonists, and one of them is pretty simple panels that, that repeat, you know, especially with talking heads. There's none of that in here. Right. Very inventive. I also thought on this reread, it's a cat comic. Yeah. We're going to see a few cat things, but, but the cats respond to him throughout this comic. And there are several scenes where he goes and then he leaves with like cats following him or they're, they're following in or out of a, of an apartment. Another piece of mixed media, another great piece of Detroit. And look at that cat. On the show another great title lettering so it's all on display here this is kind of the book in a nutshell all we need is somebody bleeding that uh black ink blood uh behind him and we'll be getting some of that yeah for sure i love all the all the city depictions though you know i, I think the city is a staple of american superhero comics and so it's cool to see kind of like the dark version of the city the the nightmare the street level it's never daylight in a crow comic no and it's very rarely not raining <laughs> um here we have current time period mixing with flashbacks which is pretty interesting you know it's uh he gets his mileage out of this you know it's a simple story but he really explores it from a lot of different every way you can think of these yes. different combinations and the hint of the bedroom which we'll see sort of at the end of the story but throughout the story he keeps going to this house that they shared and he can't quite go into that bedroom that's like the most powerful piece so like you'll see flashbacks of it and it's more of that dr caligari you know, yeah. impressionistic or expressionistic. I always forget uh, which it is, man, but it's... That's a know, good call. It's like those painted-on shadows in old movie sets. Frankenstein had it. Frankenstein had that, too, you know? Yeah, Caligari's he, the great reference. You know, I mean, that. like, I, I learned about that in an art history class, and I think a lot of people did. I have no idea if that's exactly where Obar's coming from, but even if not, it's one of those things that is such an influence on so many people, yeah. filmmakers, artists, storytellers, Yeah, like I said, you're picking it up. Like I said, it's in the Universal Monster movies afterward, and it's in cartoons. You know, it's in Chuck Jones, like these weird angled windows and doorways and stuff. What a great splash page. Incredible. It's really well composed. It's interesting. And again, like this is what I'm talking about with the young cartoonist. You you 
rarely see this kind of inventiveness. You know, it's it's a static image. Nothing's happening, and yet everything is happening. We said at the top of the show that you know he is he's a comic guy, but he is definitely pulls from beyond comics, and I think that's the strength of the narrative here. I think that's the strength of what he brings to the table. Because it because it's it, it's just a different approach. Like things that we've just up to this time, you know, context is key with with everything. Um, we never saw anything like this in in comics history at this point. That's a good point, Ed. Because nineteen ninety two, I'm looking at Youngblood and I'm looking at The Crow. <laughs> I did not see stuff like this right. at that time. I, you know, this is pre Caligari for me. This is this yeah. is I had not seen anything quite like this. Ink washes here. This is a good printing, man. It's interesting you say that, because we pointed out some deficiencies in my copy of Understanding Comics, some of the printing. Um, might be something that they, they fixed up after... Uh, this is not a first printing, so you know after uh, a couple printings, maybe something Kitchen Sink found a better printer. All right, so that was all book one. Like, if, if you picked up, you know, if you picked up Caliber Comics Crow number one, there you go. Yeah. And that would have been printed on newsprint, so I'd be curious to see what some of that looks like. Here's some more of his, like, you know, performance art, wh whatever that is, man. And maybe maybe some kayfabers out there, they're, they're, they're in touch with their third eye, and they could tell us what the fuck that's about or whatever. But I'm a comic book dude. And the stuff that I thought about immediately was uh, in the great uh, Miracle Man... Number 14. Look at that, John Total Vin signature. Nice. Um, what a good, good signature, too. Nice there's, and clean. There's all this, like, odd, you know, Miracle Man performance art dance routine gimmick that he's doing throughout. And I just wonder if if it wasn't a direct uh, inspiration for James O'Barr, did this comic give him some permission to, like, explore that in his own comic? Because sometimes... There's value in that. If you see something kind of done before where you you could like do your own spin on it. I don't understand it in the Miracle Man comic and I don't understand it in the Crow either. You know what? I wonder if it's a thing that's connected to his uh you know, you said his his fiance or girlfriend partner, you know, was killed by a drunk driver. I wonder if it's some kind of personal reference mm -hmm. this, you know, dance. I don't know that to be true. I've sure, never yeah. read that, but I'm just speculating here. I wanted to point out, so uh, this is a great, I, I think this page is really cool, you know, dancing, kind of strange storytelling, strange piece within the context of this super violent, horrific tale. And one bit of captions here, Gabriel, have you ever seen Seven Samurai? Gabriel's the cat, mm -hmm. and it's one of the first uh, biblical names, you know, like there'll be a lot of biblical names that are dropped throughout this, and that's one of the first ones. Um, Gabriel is, uh, I believe it's a reference to Archangel Gabriel. Um, that's a name that really goes through a lot of Christianity and can mean some different things, but clearly I think that's a, a biblical reference. And then the other piece is the seven, seven Samurai. Like, not a lot of words on this page, but man, a lot of, uh, a lot of, you can read into these quite a bit. And the Seven Samurai reference I think is interesting too, as we're noting different things like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, you know, clearly he is looking at a lot of different things and influenced by a lot. All right, so he is heading out to uh, confront another another person or people on his list of uh, vengeance. First beheading of the gimmick. Yeah, some some cool sword fighting that goes on here. This uh, this kind of when I was a kid, man, I would I would just be too 
I would give too much of myself to, to the art and just trust them for everything. So I like never read that as a light bulb. I was like, why does he have like a noose around his neck? Yeah, that's that's kind of a bad, like a weird tangent. And there's your beheading yes. you're talking about with the swoosh sound effect. Always funny to have kind of that cartoonish piece as part of it. And now the the thing that's look at that man. See, I would I would fixate on this oh, yeah. kind of thing as a little guy, man. Like when, once I once I learned that you could just draw a couple parallel lines and make a gray texture, I was obsessed with doing that. And uh, to see it done pretty well um, is very cool. And you know, I just got done talking about Gabriel and and Archangel of Purity and Truth. Here we have Jesus Christ walks into a hotel. He's telling this joke in the dark, freaking this guy out. Um, so again, it's rife with, with Christian reference throughout. And he takes the sword and cuts this guy off at the shins. This guy, his rule in the, uh, in the murders is that he, he basically kicked, uh, Eric's fiance to death, kicked her in the head. And so you see, you know, his feet being cut off. Take so shits away from him. A little bit of, uh. I don't know if justice is the right word, but but narrative poetic uh, justice. Yes, yes, exactly. Which is what they tell you don't do. See, that's the thing. That's what I like about the crow is James O'Barr breaks a lot of rules, and it doesn't matter. Like it, it th this gives you permission to kind of like do certain things. Poetic justice? Why not? This whole story is a telepoetic justice, and your professor at school is going to tell you not to do that in your in your creative writing. That's a great point, because it's what makes this book successful, I think. This panel confuses me. Is mm -hmm. he, he's done with his sword now, and he just like throws it up in the roof, or just sticks in the ceiling. I can't tell what that is. It's, it's very weird. I, you know, he didn't read Ronin. Eric Draven didn't read Ronin, man. <laughs> you got, you're supposed to hold on to your sword. I agree. This panel, on the other hand, I think is a really interesting layout. Now, this is like primo outlaw stuff. Tell me they didn't fucking nail that guy perfectly in the movie, too, man. It's like, that guy looks just like him, man. They did, and this is Gideon's resale pawn shop. Gideon being a character Liefeld introduced when he introduces Deadpool in the end of his New Mutants run. Um, I don't know that that character went anywhere, but Liefeld also a guy that uses a lot of Christian references and names and things like that. Yeah, man. And, uh, you know, what are those Bibles in your hotel when you stay at the Best Western? Very true. So he, uh, the crow is here looking for the wedding ring that the gang, or, or the engagement ring that the gang took from he and Shelly, and then pawn. This is a place where he would often pawn things. Very outlaw panel right there. Oh, yeah. And it's sure. like the lack of proportionality. It's sort of like the oddness of it. You know, big head, small arms, intense lighting, intense line work. Like, uh, you know, it doesn't abide by anatomical structure yeah. the way they tell you we we but talked, it doesn't matter we've talked about a lot of artists like that from jack kirby to frank miller where it's like the anatomy is not nearly as important as the impact the movement the emotion and obar's a good example of that because here we are praising his art but there's lots of panels where you're going to be like those eyes are too big or too close or the mouth is off yeah it doesn't matter. Like it's it's much more like the uh, the sum is greater than the parts. Mm -hmm. Like a true comic should be. You shouldn't be you shouldn't be fixating on one thing. It's 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 the totality of it. And I think like the close together eyes, that's a Barry Windsor Smith thing. Like when you take a look at those old yeah. Conans that are super influential to the people of this generation, and you know they're good comics. So like check them out for sure. But uh, he'll draw those equine faces and the long snout nose on human beings and the close together eyes. 
all of the uh, the clutter in the store too. It's like the store is a character here. It's perfect. I, I hate saying that. It sounds terrible, but it's so outlaw. You know, it's all the gray from like just so much ink, so much detail. But instead of cross hatching or something, it's actually just the clutter of the store. And he draws the objects. It's not like little little right. piles of slime or you know soft focus stuff. Everything's in hyper focus. This is a strange panel. The the guy Gideon is handing him after after the crow puts his hand uh, a knife through the guy's hand. He hands him the box of like all the jewelry and stuff that he has. This is all in one panel where it's like here's the box, but then also we see the crow taking the box and looking at it. He pretty uh, pretty weird. He he did that a, a couple times earlier uh, where it would be like this 180 degree thing in like one panel and it, it doesn't work but you know what he's trying things some of it's going to work some of it isn't i'm okay with it i'm down with it it's just interesting you know it's different as you say breaking rules mm -hmm. this is like the perfect uh blend of white black and gray on the page for me <laughs> on, on the spread of it yeah this is this is getting dark like as we go it feels like Man, this, there, there's more black than white in this comic. And, you know, like with Understanding Comics, the, we didn't get good blacks on the page. It's like, we better solve that before we print this Crow comic. Yeah, for sure. So after he finds what he's looking for and he's killed Gideon, now he's getting ready to uh, basically burn this place down. It has a, a dark spot on his history. That's his dark uh, Judge Caligula post. <laughs> <laughs> Should be a fish, a goldfish in here. <laughs> And what is the product placement? A Nike, uh, I'm surprised you get away with that. I wonder if that's in subsequent printings. So another cool title lettering. And as he's getting ready to torch this place, a cop shows up. And we're going to see this cop again towards the end of the story. Played by Ernie Hudson in the flick. But uh, but he shows up and, and the crow's kind of like, this is what I'm doing and <laughs> you're not going to stop me. Yeah, the rules of the crow are interesting because uh, he's unstoppable, clearly. He gets shot, stabbed, all of this. But he still, like, does sit-ups and everything. Yeah, I, I, the training montage, I didn't totally understand why he would need to do that. But here we go, starting into some of the uh, some of the stranger, um, I am complete and total madness, you know, captioning. Yeah, very goth. I am fear. A lot of listening to The Cure and shit. And whenever the policeman's like, you know, please, please stop or whatever, he's like, you know, shoot me. Like, I'm leaving. <laughs> you can take a shot or whatever, but I'm leaving. And so he leaves... Uh, tells the guy, you know, this place is going to blow up in about two minutes because of the fire that he started. And this cop, who's a pretty new cop, I think he's been here like three months, he, he reveals in some of this exchange, goes out and calls his uh, the police chief or the captain and, and basically tells him what's going on. And the captain has some connection to the crow from the case a year ago. Mm -hmm. um, no, no resolution, but he does visit him in the hospital uh I guess before he passes away. This is one of the things I always tip my hat off to a cartoonist who could pull this off. This like uh, pulling out like light out out of the darkness. Um, Otomo's great at it. Miller can do it on a good day. Some of Ken Langriff's like New York City Outlaws will have these. Anybody that does like uh, say a New York City Times Square will try to do some version of this. And it's not easy. No, it isn't. I love it too. It's it's a huge piece. These this again, if superheroes and cities you know are part of that genre. This is the black and white explosion version where it's like it's that city at night. And he gets a little bit of that, you know, like uh, very early on, there's a caption and it's something to the effect of the rain coming to wash away the sin or it can't wash away the sin. Something to that effect, which is a staple of these dark vigilante characters. Tire tread on burst stomach. Or Urban Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> Mixes in a lot of this 
uh, in addition to the lyrical poetic captions, yeah, we have a that. lot of like song references, poetry. Uh, this is this is uh, Cure yeah. lyrics. So makes perfect um, sense. And there's some thanks in the beginning. You know, like he must have needed permission for some of this stuff that he runs. But it's one more piece of that like lyrical kind of. You know, I think this points to where he's coming from, what he's striving for with some of the more lyrical captioning. Thank goodness. And he, again, like the Seven Samurai, this is just more reference to him looking at, thinking of, you know, listening, drawing references from different places. Makes me wonder about the sphere of influence when it when it comes to Sandman, uh, because this came out in like '89 or something. This is pro this pre this predates Sandman, I'm pretty sure. Like with the the Caliber Percent stuff, if it would have come out fucking a few months later, they this would have been getting knocked as, as getting as being like a Sandman. I do have a, a note for looks like Morpheus. Yeah. You know, sometimes not as much when you get a good look at his face. It's not as clear, but there are panels where like you'll see silhouettes or shadows and sometimes it is exactly Morpheus. And, and with the mullet, like, I mean, that's death, you know, with the lipstick and all that. <laughs> but he's a couple of the sand, but, a couple but, of the endless combined. But you, if you, if you Google, you know, 1980s German goth, you're gonna see a lot of. You're gonna see the entire endless family at those <laughs> at those raves in 1981 and shit. Uh, pencil, pencil art. It's dark, but this is. If you look closely, these are pencil reproductions, which spoke to me because I did not see comics that had pencil reproductions. Yeah, just Inking was the norm. Just Nathaniel Dusk and those reproductions weren't all that great. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was not looking at those at the time and thinking like, this is what I need to do. And a flashback sequence. You know, a lot of the mixed media is is the flashback stuff. Yeah, you know, this predates, you know, David Mack, uh, who probably pulled a little bit of energy from this. Almost certainly, since David Mack goes through Caliber, the original home. I saw, I can't remember where I saw it in one of these interviews, but, like, he was one of the original guys with Gary Reed to start uh, to start Caliber, Gary Reed, the publisher of Caliber. Uh, Vince Locke is one of them, James mm -hmm. O'Barr is one of them, and it came out of a comic book store too. So Caliber is a company I need to do more research on and, and get some of those origins. But, you know, David Mack coming up through Caliber with Kabuki uh, certainly would have been aware of this stuff. No doubt, no doubt. I mean, this was the crown jewel of, uh, of Caliber for sure. And so now we're entering into, you know, this is book three of the original run. When these publishers have their big hit, I think they must, like, do they just go grow too big too fast or something, man? Because... Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know why he left Caliber. I, I don't know what any... Again, I'd like to do more research on it. So, here he is, ready to confront another one of the, uh, the, the people that had hurt him. And on his way, this guy's a junkie. He's heading to his apartment. Outside of the, this guy's apartment, he meets this little girl, Sherry who's this neglected little kid whose mother is involved with the with this uh, junkie that the crow is going to confront. They kind of have a little exchange here, and uh, and we'll see her again. Um, she, she says something about, I think he's like, he gives her the ring on a necklace, um, and she says something like, nobody ever gave me anything before, and asks if he's going to come back, and he says that they'll be together again. By the way, it could almost be Street Angel with the little black eye there. <laughs> Give her a skateboard, Crow. So he's heading up to this this uh, junkie's apartment to confront him. I think this is Fun Boy. I'd never recognize him without his t-shirt, without his smiley face t-shirt on. <laughs> and you see the cats are gathering on the stairs in his wake. And he goes up, and a lot of these uh, interactions, like he does not kill Fun Boy here. He, he dismisses Sherry's mother, like, you know, go be a mother. Look at that composition. And, uh, and 
mother is the name for God in the lips and hearts of all children. That's another piece of that like lyrical poetry that this book is, you know, through and through. Like look at how all, like all the cats oh, yeah. like in the in the town just get together. Funboy does have the smiley face tattoo, so you just need to get a good shot of that right shoulder and recognize him. So he gets rid of uh, of her, and he tells Funboy, you know, to get the gang together, basically. Using those manga techniques. Now, I'm not saying he got it from manga, but he's putting those tools to use, man. Doing the reductive thing, scratching away the dots, sometimes putting uh, white out on top of the dots. Yeah, 100%. Gradient, screen tone, and using the screen tone for your panel borders, like there's no outline there, and you can see the ink goes past it and stuff. Probably cut out for the word balloons. Yeah, great, man. great stuff, man. This is a multimedia 101. This is like everything pre-digital that you could do in black and white. Exactly, yeah. It's just like making, like, you know, if, if this is all I have access to, I'm going to fucking use it to its fullest. Funboy is a morphine junkie, by the way. And so, uh... That's Crow, high class. Crow takes some of his stash, I think, is incentive to be like, you know, get those guys together, I'll see you tonight. And then, again, looking in on the bedroom that he shared with Shelly that he can't go into. And that's a real hypodermic. You just did not see that in comics. Like, you've seen, like, big cartoon fucking right. mad scientist hypodermics. Like, that one, like, you you seen that one as a little kid? When I got this comic, it's like, I still got to get booster shots and shit like that. Like, that's a dangerous weapon to a fucking 11-year-old. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, and fun boy, don't don't be happy. Worry. <laughs> <laughs> Praying on the pop culture, I guess, at the time. <laughs> Another flashback. This is kind of how this goes. It's, mm -hmm. it's between the present and the flashbacks, and just the torment. It really is a painful thing to read. Yeah, and then, and then just knowing like the real life piece of it, uh, you could just tell like this dude is in turmoil as he's put as he's making the comic. You know, I don't know if this is art therapy or if it's like continuing down that morose fucking like i don't know if this solves anything it's many years in the making too yeah. which makes it even more just wallowing uh, almost horrific uh bullets and lipstick together with morphine and drugs and guns dark dark matter again biblical church references yeah, and that ain't Photoshop, boys and girls, man. He's spattering white on there to create that kind of luminescence. And he's loading up all these guns. One of the things he pulled out of that uh, pawn shop was a bunch of automatic weapons, um, getting ready for these, these showdowns. Is that a Desert Eagle? I don't think so, although I don't know what it is, and I don't know if it really is anything. Yeah, I can't like, I don't know gun. whether it's... Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Semi-automatic shotgun, I can tell you that much. He... Uh... My my homeboy Rufus Dayglo knows James O'Barr. He said that uh, he was a Marine. Yeah. So I think weapons have a... Like he has some knowledge of weaponry and how to load a gun and such. Yeah, this is very much out of that 80s action movie uh, montage. Miss 45. Of like get, getting ready for whatever confrontation, loading up the guns. Yeah, One of my favorites of, of all these ra stupid rape, movies. Rape revenge flicks. Like even I Spit on Your Grave, there's a sequence where you know she, she goes in to basically ask the Lord, uh, like, I'm going to be doing some fucked up shit, you know, cutting some dudes down. Like, do you forgive me? And uh, this is essentially that. It's a re revenge movie. It's Ms. 45. It's Last House on the Left. It's all of that. Pretty disturbing, too, seeing the crossing of, like, the guns and the religious iconography. You'd have trouble with this today, I think. You'd have a certain group that would be against it and a certain group that would champion it. Um, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was always the case. 
It's just now you have access to Twitter and can broadcast your thoughts. Another cool title sequence. And these pages, if you look closely, I believe are duo shade. Yes. And so there that's will, pretty interesting. And there will be times too, man, where he gangs it up, where he'll yeah. do like a level of duo shade, probably the lighter tone, and then I'll put a zip or two over top, which creates an amazing texture that like at the time I would just study and marvel at and have no idea how he was able to get all the, all of this grit on the page. Amazing cityscape and totally Morpheus or death. Yeah. <laughs> you could almost take your pick right there, but I mean, with the overcoat on... That is uh, right out of the endless. But man, it's great. All the city stuff is so good. And even like the interior is pretty impressive. Snow on the ground. It's just perfect. Like this is such a decrepit city. You know, I've spent years drawing this kind of stuff in Street Angel and it's like, that's perfect. You know, like even the straight edges of that building corner you see are busted up. You know, there's, there's age on that building, on that concrete chipped away graffiti and things on you know whatever surfaces you do find it's really man it's an impressive picture of like urban you know of an urban environment that you're not seeing in the quickly drawn backgrounds of a marvel comic yeah no not at all and uh even like you could tell that he poses stuff like, like he's like looking at stuff and like when you see the feet there's mm -hmm. there'll We'll come to a, uh, a, sh a worm's eye view shot of like boots walking away from the camera. That is another piece that I studied a lot. But Reeboks. Yeah, he's not making any of that stuff up. Yeah, I was going to say like the interiors are equally developed as like those cool city street scenes. You also get it whenever you're in like the seedy bar and it's like the shitty shelves and the cigarette machine and the busted up door for the restrooms. It's, it's an impressive level of detail. Comics just very rarely look this way. In a, in a weird way, like this reminds me of of Watchmen in some ways, where it's like the setting is so detailed. But even like some of the uh, the Frank Miller Daredevil stuff, where he's going in like getting answers out of uh, you know going through the seedy underbelly of the city, looking for answers and informants. It feels that way a little bit. You know, there's cliche here, but it looks really good. Yeah, and there's something about the the sort of um, outsider approach to this stuff that sells it more than the four color all in color for a dime type standard comic looking stuff like this feels bootleg or underground in a in a, in a real way not like yeah in, in a in a marketing term underground it, it feels like this it's like a, a the the anti chick tract kind of art or something i really you know i think the history of marvel comics and superhero comics inform this you know this is a superhero comic in a in a place that you you don't get to see depicted this way mm -hmm. great use of white oh. yeah very this is like your dance. worm's eye view of the boots you know walking in <laughs> and this is one where he kind of tells guys like uh you know get out or or else throws a hatchet at this dude tells him to hold on to it <laughs> a little bit of a 80s slasher movie reference one-liners here and there could be out of the Punisher, you know, unloading guns in both hands. Could be out of a Western, you know, in his overcoat, pulling both guns out. More guns hanging off of his belt. Shot, nothing happens. Guys think that he's wearing a uh, Kevlar vest. Tell him, you know, do a headshot. Super outlaw, shooting a guy in the eyeball. Yeah, that's a good, uh, that's a good exit wound as well. <laughs> shells just dropping. There's, there's probably the worm's eye view boot shot, Ed. Although there's several of them, oh, but with the shells dropping around the boots, it's like a different version of the uh, Stephen Platt shells everywhere. <laughs> it's pretty good dropping around the boots as he's walking through the carnage. Yeah, you'll, 
I'll point out that boot shot. And again, look at the amount of black on these pages. Mm -hmm. You know, early on, you're seeing white backgrounds and gutters. It's gone. This is just descent into total darkness. More headshots. Yeah, it's a great storytelling storytelling mechanism that uh, can be invisible. Crow gets shot in the head. You know, these guys are aiming for his head now. He gets shot in the head, and now he's wearing the crimson mask as he's going through. And leaves Funboy alive still. This is a little bit of a weird scene for me because he tells Funboy to get T-Bird as like the main bad guy. And I thought that's what it was whenever he went and saw Funboy in that apartment, you know, and took the morphine. Tells him to get everybody together, but then tells him again. Mm -hmm. Like this is round two of like, uh, now go get T-Bird together. Yeah, nobody's perfect. And by the way, none of this makes him feel any better. He's still right. still wallowing in pain every chance he gets. I thought this was interesting. If you see this little tiny image, yes, that's the pull-out image here in the beginning, but this is cropped off in the panel, so he must have added it or something. I always like seeing the blown-up drawings, but man, that thing's blown up a lot. Like, look how tiny it is. For sure. Looks great big, too, so I don't know. Maybe it was a replacement drawing for this, this panel. I've done that before where it's like one panel is getting redrawn. Um, you know, so I think he also did a painting version of that exact it's image. A, it's an amazing image. And that must be a referenced image, you know, where he's lighting something to get some reference of like, because that's a pretty unusual bit of lighting. It's yeah, not it's, just under lighting, like you're getting a really specific shadow out of that nose. Yeah, for sure. You could you could sort of tell the, the ones that like, the, you know, this would be like a reference piece of lighting. And... Flashbacks, sad flashbacks. Slicing his wrist with a straight razor in the present. Dark. Yeah. Real dark. And then I was trying to figure out... There's a cat in a hat reference that they're one of the... I think uh, Shelly's reading it to him or something. Is he? Is that him drawing that in his blood? I is think that what so. this is supposed to be? Yeah, I think so. Continued flashbacks. All right, man. He's He's got... He's got hold of some old uh, Rolling Stone mags and shit and has all the draw all the photos of Iggy Pop he could ever want. Full on Iggy Pop at this point. Um, we talk about mixed media. I'm going to point out a real close detail here. If you see his pants are inked with a brush, they're these bigger, thicker lines. Uh, I was inking with a brush, you know, and, and trying to figure out tools around this time. And then you get up into like his torso and you'll see it's pen marks. You know, it's these much finer lines. That kind of combination where it's like clear that one is a brush and one is pen, you don't see it that often. You know, like oftentimes guys are like, a, like I'd be, you know, no Scott Williams inking or something, and, and it would all be very smooth and of the same kind of tool. And if they were using more than one tool, the line between the tools was very hard to distinguish. You know, it was, it was very, uh, there was a fluidity and a consistency. And Obar doesn't really go for that. It's like he's not too worried about blending those different tool marks together. Like the, the mark he wants is the mark that, he, you know, he, he's using that tool and he can use different marks on the same drawing. Yeah, for sure. That like, was huge for me. That's a that's an old school technique, you know, like like the older inkers all work that way, you know. So he's he's looking back at, you know, the classic stuff. Great title lettering once again. And even that has evolved, I think, and, and gotten better as the as the books progress. All right, so book four. This would be the uh, last caliber issue was book four. And we finally get to see his car. 
the the Barracuda with the Godzilla license plate. I always thought that was really really badass. You can see it there, small. <laughs> but there were a couple images that I would see in different places where that was the focus and it was clear and it just looked really cool. Had a neat detail. And uh, and this is the uh, this is kind of the scene. Yep. This is you know the the darkness, I guess, before the storm, which is what he's setting up. Book five is going to be the ultimate revenge, and so it's time to see exactly what's driving that revenge. Yeah, I get the impression that it's like yeah, this is this is it, and he there are like way more panels on a page on some of those pages than than uh, he's he's ever had before. So it's like all right, man, I'm I'm done with this after this. Yeah, and there's a lot of grids here. Mm -hmm. uh, my notes in include, you know, the various grids that we're seeing. So, like, six-panel grid, nine-panel grids. Almost, um, I wonder if this is almost like a documentary approach. You know, where it's like, by doing these grids, we're just showing this horrific event. Right. This is going to be, uh, you know, a pretty clear depiction. Again, nine-panel grids. Yeah, and it would probably be a mistake to get hyperbolic with such a such a scene. You know, like when you see the action movie scenes, man, and and you see like the crazy angles and you know the crow coming at, like breaking panel borders and stuff. It ha it resonates differently than this like more matter of fact approach. We see the crow has this scar that comes down like down his eye and across the bridge of his nose. Yeah, and he gets shot in the head twice, and he's basically. You assume he's dead. He's not quite dead here. But this this mark is a tear. So whenever he's laying there, it's kind of like the tear that comes out of his eye is what uh, what ultimately causes that that scar yeah, mark. The, 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 the buck fifty scar, man. And so after the this event, uh, this is your police captain that I mentioned earlier. Um, this is Eric in you know kind of a brain dead state. He's been shot in the head twice. Lived through this traumatic event. Eight panel grid of the doctors trying to save him. Um, I think he refers to him as being brain dead or maybe even a vegetable. And then there's some kind of a, one of the machines registers some sort of pulse or something. And that puts him in emergency surgery, but he just passes on. And six panel grid as we see him die and the crow enter his life. Look at that, man. He's got like that Bruce Lee build. Yeah. <laughs> Skinny muscular. And so that's it. That would have been where the, the uh, caliber issues conclude. And then it's a couple years, and Tundra co starts coming out with this stuff again. And so Tundra reprints the caliber stuff on nicer paper, and then reprint or, or prints for the first time this book uh, five, which is the first crow I bought. This was what was available to me whenever I was like, oh, the crow. So this is where I start. That's awesome, man, because like, the trade was, was my thing. And I think that the price for the other books were just, uh, they were they were getting up there. Yeah, Prestige, oh, the original series skyrocketed. Yeah. And then, like, these were printed by Tundra in Prestige formats, so probably like $5, kind of, you know, yeah. 48, 64 page. That was in a week's worth of lunch money. Square bound. And so uh, that's what this, this last issue is basically the big showdown. Yes. And once again, man, like, no obstacles. It's just we're, we're following him on his journey of cutting dudes down. Yeah, cutting dudes down and... Uh, tying off loose ends so this is the house that, that they had together and that he's returned to this is the cat that he had gotten for uh you know kind of as a as a present shelly was a cat cat person and he's loading up these weapons and uh getting ready last series of flashbacks and he finally does make it into the uh into the bedroom that he hasn't been able to go to up to this point gabriel just watching 
tapes up his slit wrists. It's a good aesthetic. Breaks into one last dance routine. <laughs> you got the touch. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Uh, right there, yeah, buddy. that's iconic. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's really got great. zips on there. And by the way, Archangel Gabriel of Purity and Truth has turned from white into black. This is the end, man. Loading up the guns. We see his, his scars. And uh, sets the place on fire. Just this, like, attention to detail with, like, all these bullets. and I loved all, all that. that stuff. Like, he would cut and do, like, the metallic of the bullets and stuff. And I, that always stood out to me. The leather of the gloves was really great. And then duct taping the clips onto his torso. That's how you know. Uh, that's that, uh, that's that uh, military training, man. <laughs> that, is, that is hardcore. A little diehard as well, you know, with the gun taped on the back. But that's him ready to go. This is the Western Showdown. Um, walking away from his house on fire and uh, heading off to his final destination. Loaded for bear, man. Gun belts strapped to him. Clips tied to him. Guns in each hand. Cat on the shoulder. This is, uh, when I was talking about the bullets being shiny and, and the textures, this is an image that I would look at a lot and be like, what is this image and how do you do that? You know, like, I'm not even positive what this media is. Yeah, it could be a painting that has been statted for gray. Um, who knows? This is, a, you know, this is another one of those that's kind of the same type of approach where you're getting like that wood textures. This one, I, I guess, is a painting, but even on there, there's like a dry texture that reminds me of, I don't know, pencil and color, ink. Color pencil, maybe? I don't know, but it always stood out to me and probably was a big influence on me. I work with different media, and it's probably because of a book like this where I saw it done and was like, yeah, that's great. Right. Sometimes it's better to do the ink wash or the pencil or find a way to, to reproduce it. And in the digital age, it's so common, right? There's Trivial. Like a, a brush for every technique that you want. Not so back then. So he goes and he sees Sherry, the, uh, the, the girl that he had given that necklace to early on and said that he would see again, visits her one more time before he's about to sign off. And this is him in his full glory in terms of drawing. Oh, sure. That's a really badass, the re reflection, the screen tone in the windows. Full power. All right, so Captain Hook shows up at the burning house, and the cat is waiting for him with a note around his, his neck. So that's one of the one of the loose ends. Well, Misfits reference right there. And uh, in Caliber Presents two or three, there were there were two, uh, or it might even be in that Caliber Presents one. There's a barbed Halo Angel fucking piece with that character called Danzig. <laughs> Yeah. Look at how he shows up too, and he's just like this scratched out form, just a shape, like materializing out of like thin air. But this is the stuff where we're seeing. Reminds me of uh, Halloween. You know how they would call uh, Michael Myers the shape. Yeah. We're seeing um, Duotone and uh, Zip on top of one another here and there. Brush and pen. It's everything. Like yeah, ganging up the zips, man, which is creating that moray right there. Yeah, it's a good eye, good pull. And it's funny because like this and this are almost the same effect in terms of the gray values. This is all scratch pen, mm -hmm. and this is multiple zips. And then the other loose end is Sherry, the that that neglected girl that he's befriended, 
and he gives that original cop, he gives him a note to go pick up this girl that, you know, needs help or whatever. And so he leaves the fire to uh, go tend to her. And that's the cop from the beginning, the pawn shop, that, that let the crow live and didn't shoot him in the head. Right. <laughs> and was genuinely upset when the crow put the gun barrel against his head. <laughs> here comes Goth Boy. And we're going to like a crack house here to uh, have this big confrontation. So Fun Boy does make it to T-Bird and tells him what's going on. And T-Bird's like, you know, you're high. You have no idea. Look at that boy. He got the steps cut into his hair, man, like Vanilla Ice or MC Hammer. That's the era. <laughs> Also some veins in the arms and hand. Yeah, yeah, you gotta have good veins, man, if you're gonna have hair on scenes. And Fun Boy, after he's delivered the message, just goes in the back to get high. And the crow shows up and says, you know, you did what I told you to, so here's your pain-free death. I don't know why he gives him a pain-free death, you know, all things considered. Yeah. But uh, gives him basically a morphine overdose. Lucifer reference. Um, carves into his stomach a crown of thorns again with the christian iconography and tells him that he can't uh he can't absolve him from from his sins you know that's up to you and god so it's it's very literal the christian references that he puts in here yeah. i know why jesus wept this was always like a, a big panel for me this whole, this whole page i guess really but like seeing the lettering treated as artwork yeah. was a big eye opener for me Look at the technique here, man. Super fine uh, duotone. Zips on top and just just a lot of lot of graphomania on the page. Yeah, kills the most of these guys, leaves one alive. And I guess this is two-tone. I guess he wasn't part of the carnage uh, in the past. And so he gives him the option, you know, if he wants to live. And he says, you know, he wants to live. And whenever he looks up, the crow's gone. Now T-Bird knows what's up, and he has called everybody in. And this was a character referenced in the very beginning. This is what started this quest, is that the crow tortured him by cutting off his fingers to get information about where the next guy was. Uh, he's still alive, but not doing too well. Yeah. A little bit nubs. bitter. Um, and then the rest of these guys, you know, if you watch that flashback sequence, there's a carload of dudes. But if you get to this point, it is like, I don't know, 20 guys or something. And basically T-Bird has called in everybody. He realizes there's a threat now. And this is the guy who Crow had cut off his fingers. Crow shoots down through the roof, blowing the top of his head off. There's a uh, like a meme kind of photo of a guy, a mugshot of a dude whose head's sort of like gone. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Okay. Um, it reminds me of this kind of thing. T-Bird's freaking out. There's blood on the windshield, and he's like running the windshield wipers trying to get that blood off. But of course, it's it's on the inside of the windows. And Crow's just sitting there hanging out. Almost no white on the damn page. Oh yeah, he says he's going to kill all of the uh, all of his foot soldiers first, and he wants he wants T Bird to see that. And a panel of his foot. A lot of boots. And uh, like look look at even the tension in the drapery folds and stuff like in the in the boots, man. Yeah, those, those things are weathered. He should have gotten an endorsement from like uh, Doc Martin or some yeah. some boot maker should have been uh, underwritten some of this. This was one of those city streets that I thought was really interesting and well done. Graffiti, the those shutters over top of the businesses. He's making choices too, man, because this is a light, but he decided to make that gray. So I wonder if like he tried it out was like, you know, too bright. Too, you're focusing too much on this little dot up there. I don't I don't want that. So he has command. Like he the guy knows what he's doing. 
double page spread, baby. Yeah, these are some of the money shots, especially from when I first read this. Like this, you know, this was the volume I read, and it was like, that's as good as anything I was seeing in any any other comics that I was looking at it, at the it, time. It makes you wish, like, man, why can't why can't a Marvel comic have this or something? And, and yeah, it's a time issue for one. I often say, you know, like. I would see a couple of these black and white books, things like Black Hole, Xenozoic, a Xenozoic Tales, and and they're what opened my eyes to like just do indie comics. Yeah. Like there's no compromise in in terms of art or drawing or quality. Like you can do black and white, you can do anything. You know this stuff was amazing. You know throughout this book, I meant to note he draws really great textures. Like you were talking yes. about boot leather and, and all the folds and stuff but also the guns like they have a weight and they feel like metal and they feel heavy not easy to do you no. know like 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 okay good for you you got the lines down to create the shape of a snub nose revolver now how do you make it feel legit and uh you could see um chester gold is good at that a good mixture of black and white mm -hmm. and to show the shine and stuff but intuitively it is like you're gonna fuck up a couple of times when you when you first try it out the cars are all really good even the headlights like any of the shiny parts there's just weight to everything there's weight there's light there it is man iggy stooge right there <laughs> i never understood that it's not death if you refuse it thing that runs through several you know this is in here several times Ooh, never there, totally got it there was that great uh game in sandman issue hobbs story did you ever read that one about the guy who uh who refused death yeah oh yeah 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 and, and he and sandman would ha you know have a drink every 100 years <laughs> a lot of crossover between crow and sandman <laughs> right <laughs> so they do their worst it has no effect and now he shows up behind them and it's his turn to just start taking dudes out and this is a, a B-movie action movie. This is a slasher movie. This is just carnage. It's just, this is the payoff. When I see the backlighting and the cats and stuff, I have to think that Kelly Jones was a Crow fan in some form or fashion. Lots of people had to be, right? I mean, this was, this was a big book. I saw numbers for um, the Caliber comics, and I think they sold like 30,000 of issue one. Mm -hmm. Big numbers, man. Big numbers. That would be a top 50 book now. Right. It might sadly it might be a top 10 book now <laughs> but i mean it's pretty big numbers and and you know this thing like changed my eyeballs i'm sure anybody that came in contact with it early on it would have an influence look at this here man he must have got one of them road train pens yeah you wonder like uh yeah th this whole issue is so full of this kind of detail cross hatching i don't know if that's just a value thing where you know in his mind that's the better stuff or what it is but like aesthetically it is a lot of drawing on these pages it fits the subject so perfectly too because it's gritty yeah you know it's gutter shit this reminded me we looked at eric larson's savage dragon i think issue three of the miniseries he slams a dude's face into the wall um obviously obar doesn't invent slamming a guy's face into the wall but that's a pretty good one oh, and, that, yeah. and that's very much in the outlaw comics aesthetic of like the blood the black ink blood splattering and then this one Totally, I think this might be, uh, it reminds me of a Barry Windsor Smith Weapon X panel, but I don't think, this is before Weapon X, I think, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I guess this would have been published in like 92, but I think this precedes the Weapon X stuff, but it reminds me so much of a Barry Windsor Smith panel, and, uh, you know, we mentioned like the eyes are very Windsor Smith-esque, yeah. so I have a feeling that, you know, Windsor Smith is obviously a guy O'Barr was into, and this panel reminds me of, of that. There's that Bisley Lobo, too, man, where we're sticking the tongue out and, like, the teeth are bearing down on the tongue. 
It's such a wild expression, that eyeball. Yeah. One eye. It's so hard to draw that kind of stuff, too. You know, like having any real expression in an eye, especially like a maniacal, like, frenzy. Yeah. Hard, hard, hard to draw. Yeah, the way we all cheat to do it is to draw, like, the super tiny uh, pupils. Right, exactly. A, a cartoony version of it is you're capable of, but, like, that's... N that's cartoony, but it's not cartoony in the sense of the small pupil and the big exaggerated eyeball. That's that's a pretty expressive eye. Yeah. Godzilla license plate. T-Bird T-Bird takes off, man. He's heading to Flint, Michigan. <laughs> that's that's his escape plan. And uh consistent throughout. The lettering has been good from page one. There's one of those chapter titles or scene titles. All of the other lettering continues to be strong, and now we get the little bit of a car chase. And it's like T-Bird doesn't realize where they're going, but the crow knows where they're going. They're going to the spot on the road where that atrocity happened. Yes, to continue the poetic justice thread. Yeah, and the crow manifests in front of T-Bird, causing him to wreck at this spot. And the last shot we get, claw hammer. <laughs> pretty interesting he doesn't show the uh the carnage to t-bird but rather plants an image in our head of like this is going to be a, a violent one 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 of the greatest uh things about watchmen to me like in terms of like the, the narrative value was like that very last page where there's the slush pile of items that are there to be printed when they yeah. need space from the inventory and it's like ah oh, you make the call he's saying you make the call and like that's what this is it's like you make the call what what happens with that claw hammer jim it is funny too after what is one of the more violent comics that i've read uh we get to this point and it's like this is yeah put this one in your brain theater of the mind like let, let's let's i need this to be more violent you. than anything you've seen so far so you make this part up yep yeah and uh, his final, like, peace resting moment. So we get some flashbacks to that, that bedroom. Um, photo being used, dropped in. There was a couple instances of photos being used. Again, mixed media. I think this was a cover image. or This might have been the back cover image of, like, that third Tundra book. I've seen this image used somewhere on the outside. I mentioned space and settings a couple times. You know, the pawn shop, the streets of Detroit. I think this cemetery is another really good one because it's winter in Detroit, you know, in a Detroit cemetery with the woods around. Not too different than the climate in Western Pennsylvania. I know winter around here, and it is this dead, dark, torturous-looking woods. And man, that's a good piece for uh, a background. I think for the cemetery scene. Yeah. If you can personify death through season and and foliage and landscape. This winter kind of, uh, you know, the, the dead tree setting is, is a pretty good one. Always reminded me of, like, Mike Mignola, too, the uh, the cemetery sculptures. Yeah, I think I think this, like, you know, Tim Bradstreet comes to mind. Like, this... This must be a reference to his real-life partner, right? Like, this is not Shelley. Right. Yeah, good call. Yeah, maybe... And, and more power to him, man. You know, he starts this in the early 80s. This is 93. He certainly earned, uh, you know, whatever he wants to do here at the end. Sure, yeah. Hey, James, man, come on for a shoot interview. We have questions, dude. Close with the eyes. They've been good all all, all book. Close with a gun. It's been strong all book. And look at those sh that shape. It's a, it's, 
an incredible comic, mind blowing to me. This is this is me in like tenth or eleventh grade, just being like, "What can you do in comics again?" Yes, I was on board for superhero, uh, a government superhero team. Now tell me about the Crow. <laughs> yeah, and it was it's one of those things where where uh, there's you read. I read this very young, and it's like, well, let me get some more of that. Like, where can I find some more like that? And it's like, there is no more like that. It's true. It's very true. Uh, and, and these are some of the extra stuff. Covers, uh, I don't know, sketchbook promo art. Those hands are amazing. Like, very well drawn. That's very Iggy Popish to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's what he's referencing or where that's coming from, but good hands are not easy to draw. So I tip my, my cap to anybody that can. Oh, this must have been that yes. the angel piece that was on one of those covers. This was an image that I would see in a lot of places. I don't know if that was a cover or not. Several of these things. Some kind of I, a promo I image. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't doubt that there would be uh, portfolios. and. Oh, uh, yeah, probably. And who knows if, uh, you know, North Star fucking printed the, some of the stuff in the back of a million of their publications. Yeah, this is the piece that I was showing off from Comic Scene, where, again, I was looking at the textures and just in awe of, like, how many... I don't have a pen that makes that. Right. <laughs> what are you drawing there? The classic car Godzilla license plate. This was a good one with the uh, chain link. Just a lot of iconic ideas came out of this book for me. I think this is the, uh, the covers for the Tundra series. So this would have been the one that I had. And then these were the other two volumes that Tundra printed. Hardly ever see those. Yeah. The, when you, and when you do, they're like, in the back of it, like on the dealer's wall, yeah. like you can't you can't get your hands on it. Crow number one cover, right from uh, Caliber, I believe. Oh yeah, see, I don't. It's all foreign to me, man. Oh, all, man. All, all I have is that, uh, you know, the very first thing, man. That's worth I thought you had the original, uh, the Caliber series, which I don't have any of. And if you did, it was like, why didn't we look at those? Because I am curious how this stuff looked on newsprint. Oh, I bet it was very uh, muddy. Yeah, some of the mixed media stuff would be, I assume, almost impossible to print. But apparently they did, and maybe that's why he moved on to Tundra. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I had no idea about that. But this book changed, completely changed my trajectory, Ed. It, it really opened up, you know, you said more of this. Where do you find more of this? And again, th there aren't more of these, but there are things, you know, like this is probably whenever I started getting hold of like the kitchen sink catalogs and trying to order some stuff, whatever I could afford out of there. It's certainly the time period when I started looking at the black and white stuff, like Xenozoic Tales, like Black Hole. Um, those were mail order books for me where it was like, I wanted more of this. Mm -hmm. And hey, those are equally have their own merit and, and a huge influence for sure. But in terms of like personal and violent and superheroes, like, I don't know what else you know, where you would go from here. Things like Razor are probably in a weird way, a descendant that you could trace back to this, you yeah. know, almost like the crow family tree or something. Faust is like a weird one, but like you look, that's just, it's really the art of Faust that, that, uh, speaks to me. Um, you think about how these smaller companies would have their Urzats superhero comics and stuff, but, and it was all just, that ground level, like people trying to um, aspire to be a future spectacular Spider-Man penciler or something. This is a superhero comic where this guy is just using his own language. He's not using Kirby language. And uh, it's very refreshing uh, as a reading experience, you know, like to, to see him kind of like divorce himself from that place. 
and he does come from that like maybe to this day uh there's somebody on ebay trying to sell off these like x-men pages from the 70s that that james obar drew so he comes from that space man but in the 80s when he started on this tip just the other influences in life kind of crept in maybe a little of the military experience uh the music scene that he was involved with those are those are really noteworthy things because comics have been very insular and at that time period the early 90s maybe never more insular than they were then mm -hmm. you know at that point you had I don't know, third or fourth generation type Marvel guys who learn everything they know about comics from reading comics. Everything they know about drawing. Yeah, yeah, everything exactly. They know about writing. And so like bringing in those kinds of other influences was huge and definitely more the norm, I think, now when we look at comics that, that stand up or that reach wider audiences or that have longevity. I think all of them have that like I'm looking at more than just comics. I'm bringing in my own personal aesthetics and my influences are coming from a wide range of subjects. Crow was one of those early ones for sure. Uh, especially that, you know, kind of wore those influences on their sleeve. And I love the idea that there is some superhero comic uh, underlying, you know, genre elements to this, but not any superhero comic that I've ever actually seen. Like this is the, it's fascinating to think of what is James O'Barr unleashed on the Marvel universe? Like what's his <laughs> daredevil look like? <laughs> would not be, uh, would not be pretty. Yeah. And, and we, we say the word superhero, but it's, you know, it's a guy in a costume. And, uh, lately where my head has been and with the comics that I've been working on, it's like, yes, I want to draw some fun looking like costume thing, but the superhero was played out. So like, let's, let's, have the costume thing but go in a different direction and that's sort of like the crow's been inspiration it's been very important for me to reread that of late to just get in a certain kind of headspace to know that they're to just reinforce uh the idea of like bringing in your outside influences and and i think it's possible like to look through this from the writing standpoint too because most comics if you pitched this to somebody today they would tell you all the reasons it doesn't work mm -hmm. you know it's this narrow focus not a lot happens you know it's it's very much just like this one tiny little story that's spread out over 200 plus pages beautifully and it's kind of the magic of comics is if i just told you the story of the crow it'd be like okay it's you know a revenge story it takes five minutes he goes and kills this gang that killed him yeah but the magic of the comics is once you tell that story through comics you, you get the rich part of like, what do the images bring to this story? And they do bring a lot, man. I read this, you know, this week in preparation at night before I'd go to bed. And it was like, this is a very different experience than reading Calvin and Hobbes before bed. You know, he communicates that sense of torture and torment and despair very effectively. Yep. I don't know if there's uh, anything more I could say about it. Nope. We have our own comics to draw ourselves, Jimmy. Uh, K Fabers, like, subscribe, follow the YouTube channel, hit the bell. We'll let you know when those next vids are available, and we are on that race to 20,000 subscribers. Make it happen. You can subscribe to the Cartoonist K Fabe e newsletter at the link below this video. You can find Cartoonist K Fabe merchandise and t shirts at the links below this video. Jim, I got to show you this new technique I figured out with the duo shade, man. We better get out of here, dude. Give them the marching orders, man. Read more Outlaw comics. <laughs>